Hey, another episode of Chewy Salon Chair. Although, once again, we're not in the salon chair. Um, we're in Minneapolis with my friend Tom Eerson, um, hurled to almost everybody else in the world. Uh, he's on his way to Portland, Oregon sometime this week. Um, are you excited? I'm elated, and I'm also overwhelmed. We're we're uh, we're sitting in his backyard. No, it's his front yard. It looks like his backyard, but it's his front yard. <laughs> it's a front yard. All the pictures I've ever seen in this place, I thought he's got the coolest backyard in the world. And I show up here, and it's actually his front yard. It's the f- coolest front yard in the world. It really is. It's, it's a really cool place, and he's leaving it for Portland, which you've always wanted to head there for quite a while, anyway. Yeah, I I spent some time there in what was it, the fall of '91 to the early spring of 92 uh, as a college student on an exchange program from University of Minnesota called the National Student Exchange. And so I went from Minnesota to the University of Oregon, go Ducks, got a job at a bike shop out there and called Second Nature, which I don't think is still in existence, but I really fell in love with the topography and the mountain biking and just the whole green vibe and ironically that too was like one of the early uh craft beer scenes right and i mean to this day i'm not like a huge craft beer head i still would drink a miller high life over just about anything but nevertheless uh being exposed to all these different beers and just different you know topography with the forests and the and the mountains and the everything's just so lush and green right and I won't lie, like the huge component was the mild winters. Which is which is why jokingly everybody calls Portland uh Minneapolis West. <laughs> yeah. Because there's West. so many of us have moved out that way just for that reason. Unless you're RT Ryback and then you say Portland's just another street in Minneapolis. <laughs> but yeah, it was that was in ninety one, so that was literally thirty years ago. But the cool thing is when I decided to go on that program my girlfriend at the time and I, we actually rode our bikes from North Dakota to Oregon. Oh, cool. And that was just another eye-opening experience because I think I might have been to, like down to Colorado and Moab prior to that, but I'd never been to the Northwest. And like I said, I was just like, wow, this place is just amazing. And largely it was a combination of the cycling culture, um, kind of that, you know, back then it was sort of a hippie vibe for sure. Sure. I was never like a deadhead or anything like that, but I was a college student, right? So, hey, you can smoke a doobie and not really be hassled. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I always had it in the back of my mind, like, man, I'd really like to live out here. And so then I came back from uh, Eugene to finish my degree at the U of M, thinking I'm just going to graduate and then I'm just going to move back to Oregon. But, and, you know, I had a kid right around that time and just, you know, life just got more complicated and kind of concurrently I was working at the alternative and got in with like Gene Overpriller and sure was through Gene and a lot of the mountain bike community I was introduced to a whole other subculture and you know that was awesome as well so I didn't feel like I was missing out on not being able to go back to you or to Oregon because I was making all these friends and relationships with the Minneapolis mafia what became the Minneapolis well, right yeah yeah and 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 personally you are to me I was somewhat surprised when you posted that you were going to be moving because it's like you are 
your roots are so embedded so deep in this city right now. Um, I mean, I won't, I won't deny it. I have a, a, a some pangs about moving because I do have deep roots in this community, cycling community and, and beyond. But I also feel like I'm at a stage in my life where, you know, my son's 28. I'm not currently, I'm, or I'm just, I'm not married. I don't have a family that's holding me here. And kind of my previous job was sort of showing signs of dive bombing. And you're in the bike industry, which is kind of a scary industry to be in anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of things happened in the last five months. It kind of made me realize that my current position was sort of tumultuous. And I just started putting the putting my ears out there to see what was available. And out of the blue, I saw a job posting with Breadwinner in Portland for their their wheel company, which is called Sugar Wheel Works. And so I'm going to be the customer service and sales manager for Sugar Wheel Works, uh, working alongside Tony Pereira and Ira Ryan, two amazing frame builders. And in addition to that, there's only six employees in the in the company, so I'll be employee number seven. So it's kind of cool to get in on a uh, burgeoning, you know, small indie company, as it were. Well, Breadwin has been around for seven, eight years at least. Yeah, at least. I mean, Ira, Ryan, and Tony Pereira were—they were both frame builders, independently of one another. They joined forces as Breadwinner. Yeah, I bet it's been ten years. I think it's been ten. And I've, I have one of their bikes. I've raced on uh, one of their teams at the Rouge Roubaix, a gravel, well, more like a road race with some gravel sectors uh, in 2015. I've gotten to know Ira over the years anyway because he's from Iowa, and he, we have a lot of mutual friends. And, yeah, it just seemed to kind of be perfect timing. Sounds to, like it, yeah. To it's do so, it. And like you say, weather's great. You've got a job out there. Um, probably, probably a less stressful part of the bike industry right now. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, they, you know, sell complete bikes as well as just frame sets. So, like everyone, they're having um, issues getting parts. But, right. um, you know, for the most part, the cool thing about Portland as well is that there's a lot of smaller cottage industry almost for for the for the bicycle culture or bicycle industry. So there's frame builders and there's uh, every kind of bike shop you could imagine, you know, like cargo bike shop only and e-bikes and commuter bikes and mountain bikes. So it's not unlike Minneapolis and there's a fervent following, but um, do you think it's more so? My impression when we were out there, and I've only been out there once was out there with uh the Surly guys, when we rode, we met up with Nick Sandy. We rode from Portland to the coast and up the mm. coast a bit. That, That's right. That That's disaster. Right. And it rained the whole time. I'm like, why does anybody want to live here? Um, <laughs> but but at the same time, I felt like their, and no offense to Minneapolis, of course, but I thought that their bike culture was stronger. Well, I, I couldn't necessarily confirm nor deny that, but I do know that they have a lot of built-in infrastructure. Like, there's bike bridges and bicycle uh, traffic lights specific to, to their commuters. Like the commuting scene out there is off the hook. All, of course, with COVID in the last year, everyone working from home and various lockdowns that is sort of on hold, I think. But um, 
that's true here too. Like the Greenway here is not the same as it was even not as busy two years ago. But yeah, there's the bike culture there is is definitely a huge component of why I feel it's viable to uproot my life and move halfway across the country. <laughs> well, I, you said you're not the first one from here to do it. I mean, there's been others, but it's but it's it when when you posted that you were doing it, it didn't. I, it, was, it surprised me again, like I said, because you, you know your roots are really deep here. Um, you bought a house and, and during the pandemic, you were posting pictures of your rides around town with pictures against iconic buildings in Minneapolis. And it's like, yeah, this is kind of his place. Then. And then when you're, but when I, when I saw that you were moving, it was like, no, that's kind of, it kind of makes sense to, to, for, for an unknown reason, but it did make sense to me that that would be a jump that you would make. Yeah. Well, another key reason for it is that. Um, you know, clearly I wouldn't move out there if I didn't have a solid job offer, but I have a large contingent of both personal and professional you know, friends out there. And so it's going to be s- somewhat of a smooth transition, right? Right. Oh to, yeah. To like land there. I already rented a place to live. So that's a huge relief. Tell me it's not close to Cheevers though. <laughs> I made sure to be at least one mile out of his radius. <laughs> But, you know, I'll have a lot of colleagues and, and some very close friends that are there that, and have been there for a while that will make me feel a little bit at ease. It's not like I'm moving to Cincinnati where I don't know anyone, right? So, right, yeah. Um, well, and Portland in itself seems like a very friendly town. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the places that we went to when we were there and Cheevers dragged me around too, I mm-hmm. was I felt very welcome there. So Yeah, I think that's true. And they have an outstanding, you know, restaurant scene and live music scene and and you know you're like an hour and some change from the ocean right or you can go up to hood river or mount hood or mount bachelor so you're the access to the excuse me the the access to outdoor recreation year-round is pretty key well just talking to people like like you're easily an hour from any kind of writing you want to do yeah yeah there's the one thing it, i guess it to my knowledge, it does not offer is the in-town mountain bike trail systems like we have even in Minneapolis. Sure. That I know they did open a bike park, I think late last year or early this year, which combines like a like a bike park plus some single track in the city proper. So, um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to just getting out there and kind of exploring because I don't know. I mean, I've I've spent some time there visiting friends over the last you know, 20 years, but I bet it's been five years since I've been to Portland and I don't know the city. I, mean, I know, know how to get around, but I don't know a lot of the shortcuts and the oh yeah sweet little alley spots and dirt jumps and stuff. So, yeah. So that's going to be a fun experience. Just learning that right. just like it is just like it is for me to come up here to Minneapolis and chase you guys around. It's like, this yeah. is awesome. Yep. Speaking of that, we did have a kind of a final send off Wednesday night ride last week. Oh, did you? That turned into like a almost, Nearly forty mile, uh, not a death march, but it was a it was a good ride and a lot of single track and some stumbling and. Were you out front or was Gino out front? Uh, or took turns. I think we were both off the back. <laughs> really? Normally, <laughs> normally what happens? We come up here and one of you guys start leading the way, and it's like I'm going to die on this ride. Well, the reason being is Paul Ziegel was. Oh Jesus, that's even worse. Yeah, <laughs> he he led the charge. He he kind of made up the route, and it's a pretty cool like some cool single track trails that parallel the uh 
railroad tracks that go out towards Lake Minnetonka. So, oh, cool. Kind of some bandit trails and a mixture of known trails and Paul Ziegel style trails. Like, like Theodore used to be before yeah. it became a legal place to ride. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's cool. So you've got pretty much, well, right in right now you're in the process of packing, which looks like I'm glad I, I'm glad I live 80 miles away and I don't have to help you. <laughs> I'm, I'm over my head. I'm for sure over my head. I'm going through boxes or, or trying to put things in boxes and trying to, you know, throw things away that I don't need to haul across the country. I'm a bit of a pack rat. And I did do a pretty decent job, though, of offloading a lot of bike parts and actual bikes over the course of the last two or three weeks uh, on Facebook, Messenger, uh, what do they call it, Marketplace, as well as we had a bike swap at Jeans. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, like a week ago, Sunday. <clears throat> but, yeah, it's been, uh, been kind of cathartic in a way to, to go through all this stuff I've accumulated over 30 years. Um, and it's got to be some interesting stuff because you've been in the industry for so long and, and you're kind of a, I don't even call it, a guinea pig. Here, try this and see what you think type of a person. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, so I've, I found some gems, but, um, you know, I I sold, I think, eight bikes in the last week. And I'm thinking, like, that's pretty good, paring down the fleet. But I still got 10 of them in my shed. So <laughs> I'm not sure what we're going to do. I I. Just, I've always said if I have to move, there's just going to be a giant fire. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to do. That's been thought about. Yeah, sure. I know. It's, uh, that, did you hear that I had my, uh, the pink, um, Moonlander stolen? No. Yes. No. We've parked out in front of Brothers for 15 years by doing nothing. There's no, there's nothing to lock your bike to. So I run a cable through my wheels and somebody hoisted it up that big pig of a bike. And put it in the back of their vehicle and took off with it. And of course, ah. there's no cameras outside, so we we haven't had any sightings, nothing. And it's kind of, I mean, it's it's it was a stupid steal for whoever because the frame is rusting, the the components are seized on from riding in in, in winter. Yeah, the win well riding it in winter and then using it as a commuter winter bike and then riding on that slushy stuff they put down before it snows. Oh, sure. And that stuff just eats everything. So right. whoever stole it got other than other than you know, a pink Moonlander, they got absolutely nothing. A, a rusting husk. Yeah. Marcus. With, with luck, they'll, with luck, it'll last them another week or two, but it'll probably fall apart on them one day. <laughs> I hope so. That's and then they come find me. The way it, it should be. Seriously, we've, we've parked bikes out in front of there for, uh, I don't know how many years and never had a problem. And then the one night, literally the first night that they had a tap takeover since pandemic. And then that's when it got, so it's just weird. I see. Oh, I see. You have a Brickstone frame still hanging up here, or well, partial. That's, that's the front end of my old XL one, which I had couplers put on it many years ago, and then I subsequently rode across uh, Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam on that bike. That's the one you took. Yeah. You guys did your, when you guys did your trip over there, that's it. That's well, the front end. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was that was uh, an epic trip for you. <sighs> How many? Was... You were gone for what? Three months? No, nine weeks though. Um, 2003 in the in like february from february to may of 2003 um the illustrious and beautiful kelly mcwilliams and i rode across cambodia and vietnam and then back down into the southern half of vietnam across the mekong delta and actually you guys did it before now it's actually a thing well we did it on single speeds not because we 
thought we were tough. But that's the only bikes we had at the time. Sure. Um, you know, I guess today they'd call it bike backing. Right. <laughs> and it's got gears and everything. But you guys were, I kind of remember seeing your setup. You were, you weren't that, other than you made it up yourself, you really weren't that different than what a bike packing bike looks like now. Yeah, well, she rode a Surly one by one, and I had a this Bridgestone, but I had like a riser bar. So we both had panniers front and back. You know, frame bags weren't really a thing yet. No, it seems like you guys had, do you have sleeping bags between your handlebars? Seems mm-hmm. like a- no, we, we didn't even bring ble- uh, sleeping bags. We just slept in youth hostels and guest houses and, you know, rundown hotels and things like that. But um, this was kind of like early internet days. So th- once a week, we might try to find an internet cafe where we could send back, you know, emails to our friends yep. and family. But, um, you know, I think you might have been able to follow along on Bike Magazine at the time I was doing like a web series for, for See, them. I knew there was something that we were following on, we were following online with, but yeah, I can't remember what it was. It was Bike Magazine, um, the editor at the time, Ron Ige, gave me, uh, gave me a little stipend to you know, send back dispatches from the Southeast Asia tour, which was super cool. And, uh, yeah, that was, like I said, in 2003, so 18 years ago. Epic trip. Feel like I can remember, I can remember uh, portions of it like they just happened yesterday. In fact, a lot of the guest houses we stayed at in Vietnam, they'd have little individually wrapped uh, toothbrushes with little tubes of toothpaste, like micro. And going through some of my papers and stuff the other day, I came across, I still have a few of them. <laughs> I, would, I, I brought a bunch home and I would like, whenever I'd like mail out a CRC t-shirt order or just a random thing, I'd, I'd include a toothbrush <laughs> or, you know, just, just bits of random ephemera. I've got like maps and business cards from hotels we stayed at in Vietnam. It and, seems to me that there was a story you were telling about, did you have to jump on a bus for a while and you went to a hotel and the beer was super warm, but it was all you could, it was like fantastic because you were dying just to have a beer? Well, we did take a train. A train? We, did, we didn't take the bus, but we we took a train. See, how did we do this? We took the train from Saigon up to the coast or up, up and out to the coast. And then we rode back from the coast back down into Saigon and a lot of these little villages they would there'd be like a little bar or not even a bar so much just like a a restaurant type thing and they'd they'd be made made their own beer and it cost like you know five cents for a glass and it was every day was just dusty and hot over there right um especially in Cambodia but yeah some of these places in Vietnam would just have the best homemade beer the biahoa meaning the beer is made on site, or I think that's what it meant. But, uh, and then like banh mi sandwiches, the best banh mi sandwich you can get, you know, like there's places around here that try to emulate it, but they're just not as good. But yeah, it was cheap beer and dusty trails. Cool. So speaking of which, um, with you moving, CRC uh, is still going to be alive and well. I mean, yeah, it's not, it's never going to go away. Um, I don't know what plans I have for it. It'll, there'll always be random, you know, soft goods and t-shirts and things like that. Um, so yeah, CRC is relocating to the I, uh, West coast. We were just in Colorado and I had my, um, 
thermal shirt on, the yeah. COC one that you made. And everybody's looking at me like, what the heck is that? And not even, like, seriously, this wasn't this. I have, I have on your, your last T-shirt, which is the um, Ratfink type T-shirt. And, 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 yeah. and it was not intentional. It was, like, literally on the top of my T-shirt. <laughs> I, go, I have to go up and see him now. This is, this is like an omen. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have any uh, big game plan at the moment, but that could change. Something will pop up when you get out there, maybe a different, a different feel to it. Right, totally. Because the stuff does go all over the place. I mean, you you sell that stuff all over the world pretty yeah, much. Yeah, I've sold stuff all over the world, um, which is still pretty humbling to me and blows my mind. But, uh, yeah, it's you know that's another thing that's been going on for, what, 26 years now? Because you had the cafe, but the but the CRC started before the cafe, before Much the before, coffee shop. Yeah, yeah, no, it started in '94 as a as a Xerox fanzine in Bismarck, North Dakota, and combining, you know, my I had just graduated from college. I have a literature degree, and I was exposed to a lot of the underground music venues here in Minneapolis, and you know, the music flyers are always so cool. Yes, advertising the shows, and so. I'm no trained graphic artist, but I know what I like. And so I'd always gravitate to these cool punk rock posters and things. And as well as, you know, cycling being a bit of an underground sport at that time, as far as I guess you could say counterculture, at least with mountain biking. And it was a way to sort of meld the two. And then I like drew a little logo on a napkin. And lo and behold, that transferred to a t-shirt. <clears throat> And that T-shirt was like the, num the number one seller at QBP for about five years. Yeah, yeah. I, I when uh, I, I purchased some when I started my little shop in my garage, and I bought a bunch of stuff that I that was like my first big sale of anything. Was that stuff was gone in no time, and I happened to stumble on one T-shirt that for some reason didn't go, and it was a small. I probably just lost it. <laughs> and Sue's like, "That's not going anywhere. That is mine." Nice. <laughs> so it's one of the originals. Sorry, well, probably. Could be. Second run, maybe. Yeah. I'm going to say second run, maybe. Well, the first, very first run, we hand screened in Jason Stuckel's apartment on his dining room table. Um, but yeah, that would have been 90, I think 93 or 4, 94. Yeah, so it'd be pretty close to that because I think I met you shortly after that. Mm -hmm. But Yeah, you know, like that was part of the whole thing, like the kind of a punk rock vibe. Like, you know, we would always. Well, that's what your magazine was, wasn't it? It was the combination. Yeah, bicycle punk rock action for sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but we kind of also, not long after that, the whole single speed movement sort of fomented and, you know, not just in Minneapolis, but other cities around the country as well. But in a lot of ways, you know, like we were a band, you know, like we didn't play instruments, we played single speeds. Right. Right. It was, yeah. So we would go to other you know, we go to trade shows or we'd go to um, mountain bike events or expos and there was sort of this expectation slash uh, realism that, you know, we were going to bring the party. We were going to be the the loud ones. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I mean, it's it's why Single Speed USA, Single Speed World, all that stuff is has become such a, I don't say it's popular, it's popular amongst a small group of people, but th those that don't understand it grab a, um, a single speed bike and join in and think they're actually gonna um they're, they're out there for a real race so when they get out there it's like what's wrong with you guys <laughs> yeah there's 
there has been, well, I don't really pay much attention to the scene anymore. I still own my single speed, but yeah, it was definitely a reaction against the seriousness of the it, corporate bike racing world. We, uh, I still, and I'm with you. I, I think I don't have a geared mountain bike. I think I have a geared tandem and, oh, and then our fat tandem. So I have, I have like a couple geared bikes in that set. Even my, my handsome commuter bike isn't geared. Yeah, I've got a pretty modern Ibis hardtail with a geared, like a one-by drivetrain. And I've got a fat bike with a one-by drivetrain. But yeah, otherwise, well, I guess I... I did fall down the vintage road bike rabbit hole about 15 years ago. Well, I remember you telling me to go pick up a, the fuck was it? It was a Schwinn, I think, that Franz had for sale. And I ran and grabbed that quick for you because it was like there was, it was, it was a certain vintage. It was a certain lugged. Yeah. And you're like, go get that bike for me right now. And you yeah. didn't care. So I ran over there and bought that. And that's how I actually met Franz. Now his daughter's racing. Really? And she's really fast. Like she's in the high school scene racing, but I think she races as an independent rather than on a high school team because she's actually got some sponsors now. Oh, wow. Cool. So, yeah. So, well, yeah. So, and then, I mean, since we're talking about it, in 2006, February of 06, I opened my cafe slash bike shop, the CRC Cycle Garage in Minneapolis, which was a great experience and experiment as a community building venue, right? Like it was a place for people to hang out and feel comfortable. And I had all sorts of bicycle literature and kind of got to know Chris Scogan through like more like through like online or, or blogging and like email exchanges. I don't think I'd ever met him in person. And he invited me to come down for this gravel bike event he's going to put on. You did the first one? Called the uh, Almanzo 100. And right over your right shoulder is that gold frame, which is the first place trophy. That's right. Yep. So I went down there on my Eddie Merckx. Corsa, which I had set up as a, as a fixed gear. I think the largest tire I could fit in the back was a 28C, and in the front I could fit a 32C file tread. And I showed up right as he was sending the riders off to start, and, you know, there was, I think, 12 or 13 people tops. And so I got my gear on, got my bike, got dropped off by my girlfriend and her mom, who was in town visiting, and off I went, and... I ended up winning. Let's just say I came in first place. I don't know if I won anything. There was only 13 people. Yeah. But that was the very first. And that one went to Mankato, right? We started in Rochester and ended in Mankato. Which was technically the uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder supposed path, as much gravel as you could make it as they went that way. So it was. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, so. Yeah. He put but, a lot of research into it, believe me. Oh, I know he did. And for the first couple of years, your registration packet came with like a graphic design level thesis of you know like a notebook and your number plate and it was impressive and he did it all out of his own pocket oh, oh believe me we we you spent know more than I yeah do. we spent nights i mean he was he was building his branding iron one time so we, we stopped by for a beer on a tuesday night ride and and he was playing with his branding iron out back and he uh, you know he's he's a pretty decent artist and he i mean he's meticulous like everybody that even when the race got huge everybody got a handwritten thank you note from him 
Well, and he would always stand at the finish line to shake your hand. And I think Skogan's the most stand-up dude. He's got a lot of integrity. He might have burned some bridges as the race got bigger, but not through his own fault. I think people got to have too many expectations. And it's like, look, man, I'm putting on a world-class event for free. And you want more. Like, there was a lot of that. So yeah. I, I get why Chris got burnt out and he kind of stepped aside for a while. But uh, he seems to be doing well now. He's working at Freewheel and he bought a house recently in Minneapolis. Oh, nice. Good. Um, yeah, so I think he's doing okay. But yeah, so that happened in 06, the very first Almanza 100. And it really, like, it was an epiphany for me. Like, as I got kind of bored with single speeding, I found that I really enjoyed just riding long distances on a road bike. Like, I never raced road bikes, but I liked riding road bikes in sketchy situations, meaning gravel roads or dirt roads or even on single track, and just going out and getting lost for hours at a time. It was really cathartic and a stress reliever. Sure. Well, all of a sudden, there's this kind of gravel racing scene happening, so the, after that first year with Almanzo, the next year the guys, two of the guys that were at that first race, Jake Hewitt and Isaac, I can't remember Isaac's last name, I'm sorry, but they put on the Ragnarok 105. Right. And that's been a super fun event. And then other events popped up. Jeremy Kershaw's great events up in Duluth and Two Harbor or Grand Marais, the, the um, Heck of the North. Heck of the North, yeah, yeah. And God, it just like, man, these events have more of a pioneering spirit. Like, there might be fast guys on the start line, but there's also people that just want to go out and challenge themselves, and that really attracted me. Like, I don't know, I, I could maybe, on a really good day, 15 years ago, if I was fit enough, I could crack the top 10, but, you know, I also like drinking beer. But um, that whole gravel scene was just, it was refreshing, Oh, I agree. You yeah, know? but now that's also become just a co-opted. Well, they're um, the. Uh, it's an indus- industry needs something to focus their attention on. Let's how- custom custom gravel bikes and tires yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And they've I don't want to say they've ruined it because I'm not sure. I'm not sure you can completely ruin it. It's um, it is what it's going to be always anyway because it's because of the terrain it's on. You can't manufacture. As the plane's flying over the top of us, um, you can't you can't manufacture the gravel roads. They are what they are. Where mountain bike courses now are becoming flowy and sure, yeah, you know, so a you can't of, you can't do that. You can't make it a race course. It's it is what it is. And true, and yeah, it, that's and, also a nice factor about it. That you, you're using you know existing road. Like you can go out and ride any one of these gravel courses any day you want. You know, oh, and, and we do. I'm you know we all kind of walked away, from, not because the Almanza was getting too big but um it wasn't necessarily the right weekend for a lot of us and so we just started guys would go out and ride it just bits and pieces of it or the whole thing if they wanted to and you know it was it was it was it was impressive but it's it's um i i i can't tell you when last time well we used to do um the filthy 50 which was a friend of and all of a sudden, I can't remember his name. Trenton Rager. Yeah. And he, you know, he kind of like brought it into a smaller, and he's run into all the same problems Chris did down there. Once it got to a certain point, everybody wants to make a buck off of it. Everybody wants it, you know, they want to get their, I don't want to say they want to get their share, but it becomes a legitimate thing. So now there's permits needed and policemen needed. And, yeah. And it, and I mean, this growing pains, right? Like, 
I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing that more people want to be involved, but you do lose a certain sense of independence and, and, uh, authenticity as the events get bigger, but that's just unavoidable. Really? It is. And and it's a sign that it was something that needed to happen. Now, you know what the new one is clunkers. Yes. Clunker races with Joe Quisley just happened. Yeah. And and unfortunately I, uh, um, I was going and then I had a procedure on Friday that wouldn't allow me to, I probably couldn't race. So I didn't, I didn't even go down there and it was, it was hilarious because, um, State Bicycle had come out with their, they had, they had a clunker mm-hmm. and I'm like, I need one of those. They keep saying, oh, we don't have any, don't have any. And they came out with their free and easy and another one and I snatched them right away so I could. And then it's like, and it was so funny, almost the fact that Joe put that on, people were like clamoring to get their hands on a bike to go jump in this. Like they were afraid they were going to miss the boat if they didn't go to this first race. Right. And I didn't even get over there. So I, I can't even tell you if it was, I think everybody had fun. I don't know how many people were there. Um, he hasn't really put anything out there, but it was. Yeah, yeah, I saw him. He posted something on Instagram where he said, "Like our first event was a success, but ironically, I just sold a. Uh, I had a one of those Asylum Hank clunkers, and I sold that last week during my bike purge. Uh, but I would have liked to have, you know, maybe gone down there because everything old is new again, right? Right. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And and you know, and it's so I do have one of the free and easies, one of the which is. It's basically, a, 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 it's, I think it's a Hank, but it's a little less, um, it's not quite as, I don't I don't know how they, I don't, I rode both of them, I can't, there's a difference in how they handle it, I don't know exactly how to explain it, but they're both 27.5 wheeled sets, which makes it nice. Um, they're fun, they're funner than heck to ride. I rode it off-road a little bit down in Decor, and it was just. Oh, they're so fun. I did, I had mine last summer, and we ran on a, we did a Wednesday night ride, and I remember sprinting into the darkness on an uphill at the Rose Garden over by Lake Harriet. Kind of a single track, more just like this clandestine little trail, but it was, I was sprinting uphill and the chain came off. And man, I just did an eight, eat shit to fakey right there and <laughs> smack my leg on the top tube. But they're just such a gas to ride. I, I'll build up another one when I get to Oregon for sure. Because you got to have a clunker in your well, stable. I, You know, I hadn't had forever. I mean, that was my... Uh, a 60 something Schwinn tornado was my basically set up as a clunker, not knowing that that's what it was going to be was my, was my commuter bike for, I'll bet the first five years I commuted, mm-hmm. you know, just, I rode it all winter long before there was a fat bike. It was the thing that I rode just all the time and it worked awesome. No matter what I wanted to do with it. We made the, we made the studded tires for him. Yes. We wrote, ran uh number four sheet metal screws out of them. So they had studs on them. Cool. Yeah. So it's uh and, and and that's cool. I'm glad to see that that it's coming out, and I think the companies that are throwing those bikes out there, um, right now I don't think are going to go overboard with it. Like I think what happened to single speeding, where the bikes got faster and lighter, and yeah, I mean, cl- a good clunker shouldn't cost more than a couple hundred bucks, but I can see where you know you're going to have. It's inevitable. You're going to see a thousand dollar clunkers. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, they're. You know the custom paid jobs they're doing on some of them now. They're five, six. There's a guy. There's a guy up here that's got one. He wanted thirteen hundred bucks for it, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, dude, come on, you can't do that. But then again, when you look at what he's got on it, it's a thirteen hundred dollar bike. Other than the frame, right? No, of course, yeah. yeah. Like, I think though, like, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's great. But so much of uh, social media and Instagram has become like, you know, like, hey, look at my beautiful bike I built. 
for this only for the sake of posting it on Instagram. You know, like a, there just there just seems to be a lot of one-upmanship, but a lot of same sameness. Yeah, you know, like every every uh, custom gravel bike has carbon envy handlebars and carbon envy stem and Paul components this and that. Like it's all beautiful stuff and it's amazing to ride, but it seems to me like a lot of people are just caught up in the exposure that they can get from it. A bit of it, a bit of it worries me. It, um, and it, it was always the reason you got into bikes. Like when I first started hanging out with you and Deke and all those other guys and started fixing bikes, um, Oh, you know, the companies were coming out with this new fancy pedal or this new, and I'm like, no, we have to be able to fix this at our home because we're cheap bastards and we don't <laughs> want to go buy something. Yep. And now, now I have to go buy another specialty tool to fix my bike. Right. It's not the idea behind it. So clunkers are, are, are kind of an interesting thing to me just because it's it's going back to that, like pretty much like fat bikes were until, and I, I'm going to pick on Gomez here for a second. They had an hour and a half conversation on dropper posts on fat bikes. I wanted to scream bloody murder. He goes, you want to be on? I'm like, oh, fuck no. <laughs> I want nothing to do with that. <laughs> That's funny because I do have a, a surly uh, Wednesday, which I love. But uh, I was a holdout for a number of years, but I always thought, like people, like Salsa did that full suspension bike, what was it called, the Bucksaw? Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of people started putting Bluto's and other suspension forks on their fat bikes. Like the thing I'd rather have on my fat bike is a dropper post because it's easy to get off and on and just, when you come to a stop, you can like lower your hydraulics and just chill, right? <laughs> oh, I never even thought about using it. Now it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise I'm like... I don't need to get my seat post out of the way. I, I know how to ride a bike. Yeah, no, I think it's it's just more of like a comfort factor. You can just like lower that saddle and throw your leg over. and Your age is starting to show. Get to go. <laughs> All right. We've gone over time as usual. Um, anything else you want to throw out there? Well, no, but I would just like to say thank you to everybody in Minneapolis and in the Midwest who's uh, shared shared a bike ride with me or a beer and, and has supported me over the last 30 years because I won't lie, the, the hardest part about leaving this is the community and the friendships and the relationships that to this day are what's most important to me. Cool. So thanks, Ron. Hey, I'm glad we got to do this before you left. I was afraid I wasn't going to get oh, up here before and, and One more shout out to the Quadna Sapling Snapper. Oh, God, yes. I still have the <laughs> t-shirts. Yes, it was awesome. Yeah. All right, I'm going to close this out. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Well, uh, We'll, I will catch up with you. I'll go to Portland and see you again. How's that sound? Sounds great. All right, cool. We're Thanks, out. Thanks, Ron.